you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. death of the Krings. In his 1932 book Wild Talents, the author Charles Fort, whose works has helped establish the field of Fortean research and after whom it's named, wrote of a number of cases where mysterious, unidentified bodies were found in the vicinity of other crimes or deaths. In that section of the book, he recounts the following. Philadelphia Public Ledger, February 4, 1892. Murder near Johnstown, PA. A man and his wife named Kring had been butchered and their bodies had been burned. Then, in the woods near Johnstown, the corpse of a stranger was found. The body was well-dressed, but could not be identified. Another body was found. Well-dressed man who bore no means of identification. The account is written in his bizarre stream-of-consciousness style, and while it did happen, sort of, for often... I've come to find out, utilized third or fourth hand accounts of a story. The media doesn't necessarily work the same way as it did back in the 1890s. Back then, the best sources for the above story, obviously, would be those originating nearest Johnstown. Stories were widely shared, appearing in newspapers nationwide. It's not as much an issue now, with the advent of computers and things like that, but back then, when stories would be transferred, They had to be physically rewritten to be telegraphed out or whatever. Over time, though, it would would often happen that the story would get subtly changed. Names would get misspelled, and you'd often have to depend on the reading comprehension of the person doing the transmission. If that person misunderstood what was actually being said in the story, it often led to the story being changed in further printings, subtly or not so subtly. Then other stories would be written based on those possibly flawed stories, and after a while, you'd end up with a story that possibly had little resemblance to the original events. In the case of the death of the Krings, the original story, appearing in the Altoona Tribune for January 29, 1892, read as follows. About half past ten o'clock Wednesday night, or January 27th, the village of Elton, seven miles southwest of Johnstown in Cambria County, was thrown into a state of great excitement by the breaking out of a fire. Most of the villagers had retired for the night, and it was the men about Ix's hotel who, still being astir, first discovered the flames. They gave the alarm, and everybody was soon out of bed and on the streets. The fire was discovered to be in the rear part of the residence of Samuel Kring. Flames were shooting out through the windows. 
In front, some of the men broke open the door and windows, but a tremendous volume of flame and black smoke burst through the openings thus made and prevented entrance to the building. Several desperate attempts were made by parties to force their way into the house, and water was freely applied from a hole cut through the ice in the dam nearby in the hope of rescuing Mr. and Mrs. Kring, who slept in a room on the first floor. But every such attempt proved futile. The heat and suffocating smoke proving more than anyone could endure, and the poor old couple were of necessity abandoned to their fate. The flames made rapid headway, and not only quickly consumed the building in which they originated, but communicated with one adjoining and destroyed it as well. The former was a two-story frame structure, and the latter a two-story plank, occupied and used as a kind of warehouse. Both belonged to Mr. Kring. As soon as the flames had spent their fury, Water was thrown in considerable quantities upon the charred timbers at the corner of the house in which the room was located where the aged couple slept, in the hope of finding whatever of their bodies the fire had not consumed. The search soon resulted in the uncovering of the blackened and roasted remains of both Mr. and Mrs. Kring. Nothing but the trunks was left. Mrs. Kring's was found in one corner of the room where the bed had stood, and Mr. Kring's in another where there had been a lounge indicating that she had been sleeping on the bed and he on the lounge. The remains were not disturbed at the time, some of the people thinking that an inquest should be held and that the remains should not be interfered with until viewed by a jury. Word was accordingly sent to Squire Henry Fye, and he arrived on Thursday morning. After an investigation, he decided that an inquest was not necessary. The remains were thereupon taken from the ruins and placed in a house nearby. As to the origin of the fire, nothing has been definitely learned. There was a stove in an out kitchen adjoining the rear of the house, and there was also one in the sleeping room. It is thought that in some way, the building caught from one of these, probably from the one in the bedchamber, the resulting smoke quickly stupefying the old couple and rendering them helpless victims of the flames. Their extreme age, too, was against them. Mr. Kring having attained his 79th year, and Mrs. Kring her 83rd. She was quite feeble, but managed to do her housework unaided, and there was nobody in the house but herself and her venerable partner. The property loss occasioned by the fire is probably $2,000. Some coin was found in the ruins, the amount being $65 in gold and $2.50 in silver. All the valuable papers were, it is thought, in the safe of D.H. Hensel, grandson of the deceased, who was a storekeeper in the village, although some say that a number of notes were burned up. As far as can be learned, there was no insurance on any of the property burned. For the above particulars, we are indebted to the Johnstown Tribune. So as can be seen, there was never really any question about the fact that the fire in the Kring's house was anything except an ordinary, accidental fire, and that they were not butchered and burned as Fort says. The butchered look of the remains was due, quite simply, to having lain in a fire. Papers of the era often dealt on the grisly details of exactly what a body looked like when it was found. The story Fort drew his account from, however, was a reprinting of the following article, which also appeared in the Altoona Tribune for February 4th. Nothing since the awful flood in the spring of 1889 has caused so much alarm as the series of mysterious murders that have been committed within a radius of 12 miles of this place. Apparently, all the five murders were done by one hand, but so far, detectives have been unable to discover its owner. On December 4th, the body of a well-dressed man was found in the woods near Galitzin, with a bullet hole in its head. 
The remains were those of a prosperous-looking man. The theory of suicide which at first prevailed was dispelled by the condition in which the body was found. No clue could be obtained as to his identity, and he was buried. A week later, the body of another man was found about 12 miles away with a hole through the head. About this time, it was learned that George Myers, a prosperous citizen of frugality, had disappeared and the body was identified as his. Myers had $800 on his person when he left home, and he had been murdered for his money. Less than a week ago, the decomposed body of another man was found in the woods near Bethel. The clothes were of good quality, but nothing could be discovered to establish its identity. The horrible butchery of Old Kring and his wife and the cremation of their bodies a few nights ago is attributed to the same mysterious murderer, who is evidently hiding in the mountains, ready to pounce on any victim whom he supposes had money. Despite the assertions in Fort's account, neither of the bodies described as well-dressed were particularly close to Elton, where the Krings had died. Both Galitzin and Bethel are about 16 miles from that place, with frugality being almost 30 miles away. And even if these were, indeed, murders, which in my opinion is far from conclusively proven, no money was taken from the Krings. So even if they had died of foul play, which was apparently never even a suspicion, why would they be lumped in with three supposed murders and robberies, none of which happened anywhere really even close by, escapes me. In more recent years, the story has undergone another metamorphosis, with an urban legend in the Johnstown area being associated with Snavely Cemetery near Elton. Supposedly, in the cemetery is the grave of a young witch named Rebecca Kring, supposedly either hung or burned at the stake. Her ghost at times appears in the cemetery or causes cars to not start. Except, Rebecca Kring wasn't 18 or 19 as the legend states, but 83. Since I now notice the articles don't mention it, that was Mrs. Crane's name. But she and her husband are buried in the Dunmire Cemetery in the nearby town of Salix. So why should she be associated with a Snavely Cemetery? Well, as it turns out, for some mysterious reason that's still unknown, the Krings were buried first in the Snavely Cemetery. But for some reason, they were later exhumed from there and reburied in the Dunmire Cemetery. Story number two. The Devil of Bristol. That chimerical creature, known as the Jersey Devil, appeared throughout the Northeast during the snowy week of January 16th to 23rd, 1909. The first sighting came in Woodbury, New Jersey, with the next view taking place in Bristol, Pennsylvania, in the space of a few minutes around 2 a.m. on the morning of the 17th. John McOwen, a liquor store owner, was woken up from a deep slumber that night by his crying baby. As he stood in the room, calming the infant, he noticed strange sounds outside. These sounded like the scratching of a phonograph before the music begins, and yet it also had something of a whistle to it. You know how the factory whistle sounds? Well, it was something like that. The window in the baby's room overlooked the Delaware Division Canal, and when McGowan looked outside, he was astonished to see a large creature standing on the banks of the canal. It looked something like an eagle and it hopped along the towpath. Within a few moments, police officer James Sackville, who years later would become police chief, was patrolling Buckley Street, which was just around the corner from McGowan's house, and was near the intersection with Corson Street. He claimed to have seen some sort of animal which looked and moved like some sort of gigantic bird, but which had features like some sort of animal standing on the towpath of a canal. 
Officer Sackville ran after the animal, which took to the wing and flew off as he fired his service revolver. Just after this, a third man, Postmaster E.W. Minster, was lying awake and walking around his house close to the Delaware River. As I got up, I heard an eerie, almost supernatural sound from the direction of the river. I looked out upon the Delaware and saw flying diagonally across what appeared to be a large crane, but which was emitting a glow like a firefly. Its head resembled that of a ram, with curled horns, and its long, thick neck was thrust forward in flight. It had long, thin wings and short legs, the front legs shorter than the hind. Again, it uttered its mournful and awful call, a combination of squawk and whistle, with the beginning very high and piercing, and ending very low and hoarse. Many sources say that footprints were found around town the day after. I can find nothing to confirm that, although there is mention that footprints were found several days later on January 20th. They were found at several houses on Bath, Mill, and Buckley Streets, much the same neighborhood as McGowan and Sackville's sightings, and they were also found at E.W. Minster's house. Officer Sackville doesn't seem to factor into the following too much, or, well, at all if I'm honest, but a survey of past issues of the Bucks County Gazette reveals that the other two witnesses, John McGowan and E.W. Minster, overlapped in news stories quite often. In addition to his duties as postmaster, E.W. Minster, as was typical of postmasters in the 19th and early 20th centuries, was very active politically and was chairman of Bristol's Republican Executive Committee. In fact, by some, he was even seen as the real leader and brains of the Republican organization in Bucks County. During a purge of postmasters undertaken by President Woodrow Wilson, he was asked to resign his position as postmaster. It was said that, for 15 years, he had paid but scant attention to the business of the office, and he was charged with being perniciously active politically. He was succeeded in the office by Reverend W.T. Johnston, a Baptist minister who had been attacked in the media by E.W. Minster years before during a scandal with the Bristol Trust Company. Several years before, in January 1902, a 19-year-old named William Carroll was charged with attacking Daniel J. Boyle, slashing him badly with a knife on Mulberry Street. Carroll was a dock worker who had already been embroiled in a fight the previous year. He was to plead guilty to attacking Boyle, but said that he was drunk at the time, and he attempted to rope into the proceedings the man from whom he had procured the alcohol, John McGowan. In 1908, he was accused of providing alcohol to an accused thief named Frank Lynn, and soon after, it was said that the driver of a delivery wagon belonging to McGowan had sold a jug of whiskey to a known drunk named Jane Marshall. McGowan was charged with furnishing liquor to persons with, of known intemperate habits, but was later acquitted. When initially arrested on this charge, McGowan's $500 bail was paid by none other than E.W. Minster, who among his many other business interests, apparently worked as a bail bondsman. A few months later, on November 5th, 1908, a wagon belonging to the Artesian Ice Company, which was owned by, yep, E.W. Minster, was involved in an accident at the railroad tracks of the Pennsylvania Railroad, where they crossed Mill Street in Bristol. Both horses were killed and the wagon destroyed. The liquor store belonging to John McGowan was also located at Mill Street Crossing as well. Only about a week before the Jersey Devil sightings, Minster received a check from the Pennsylvania Railroad for damages 
of which McGowan received a portion, since one of the horses had been thrown into his establishment. Another story, which I'll be quite honest, I don't really understand, as it's unclearly written in my opinion, from February 1909, indicates that E.W. Minster and several other people were involved in efforts to get the Doylestown Republican, print it, and distribute it more widely, efforts which seemed to have been largely unsuccessful and were losing a good deal of money. In conclusion, I'm quite honestly not certain what all this implies, but it does seem to imply some degree of relationship between E.W. Minster and John McGowan predating the Jersey Devil sightings. Given that as a Republican, Minster was opposed to the Democratic-led efforts that led to Prohibition being passed years later, what seems to be a financial relationship with a notable liquor dealer is both problematic but not really surprising either. I'm not going to say definitively that some sort of trickery was going on, but at the same time I will say that given some of the actions of Minster described in the press, he seems like the sort that would engage in some sort of chicanery which seems even more likely when the fact that he would have been losing money from his ventures into the newspaper business is taken into account. Story number three, the untold story of the Houston Batman. At about 2.30 a.m. on the morning of June 18, 1953, Lloyd Walker, his wife Hilda, and Judy Myers, the 14-year-old daughter of their landlady, were sitting on the front porch of their boarding house at 118 East 3rd Street. All of a sudden, this shadow settled in a tree, Mrs. Walker said. We all looked up and saw a Batman. He was balancing himself on a tree limb, and there was a dim gray light all around him. She claimed that the figure was approximately six and a half feet tall, dressed in dark pants and boots. She said it looked like a white man. What she at first took to be a cape, later was seen to be big wings folded at his shoulders. She then claimed that what looked like a white flame appeared behind, behind the figure, and that a moment later, a quote, flying paintbrush flew across the sky and the Batman faded from view. All three agreed what, on, what had been seen. 71-year-old Howard Phillips said he also saw the figure in the tree, and Judy's mother, Vivian Myers, saw the flying paintbrush. The house where the sighting took place is no longer there, having been obliterated by construction of the I-10 near Heights Boulevard. Although obviously, the case of the so-called Houston Batman is often mentioned in the same breath as Mothman and other such winged monstrosities. At the same time, other things were, take other things were taking place in the city, which may suggest that something more, or less depending how you look at it, was going on. For much of 1952 and 1953, the women of the west side of Houston were terrorized by an attacker called the Phantom of Bel Air, who assaulted about 15 women. Rape seems to have been his motivation, though from what information is available, it appears that in only one of those attacks did that actually occur. Many of the attacks were little documented. One victim said she bit the attacker in the hand, and another said the man threw her to the ground and ripped her blouse open before he was frightened away by the headlights of a passing car. One of the earliest attacks was made on May 20, 1952, when a 16-year-old girl named Joanne Waldo was walking near her home. She noticed a man accompanied by a dog following her, and he attempted to grab her as she crossed the street. She screamed, and the man fled. She said he was a large man, wearing a collared t-shirt and, and shorts. 
Many of these early attacks were said to have taken place near the Shamrock Hotel, which stood on the corner of Main Street and Holcomb Boulevard. As near as I can tell, after the abortive attack on Waldo, the Phantom took several months off and was next heard of early in February of 1953. On February 4th, Gloria May Shelwit was walking home from a night class and was only two doors away from her home when, she said, a man grabbed her neck and began to choke her. He threw her on the ground and started to drag her into some bushes. Her screams attracted the attention of some neighbors, and the man fled. This was to become a pattern, as discussed earlier. 21-year-old Joan Marilyn Dunn was attacked on the night of February 25th. She had gotten off a bus and was walking towards her home when a man punched her and threw her onto the ground. He was dragging her toward the grounds of the Pershing Junior High School when, like in the case of Miss Shelwit a few weeks before, her screams caused some neighbors to flip on their porch lights. The man abandoned her and ran off. Joan had a black eye to show for the encounter. The first suspect, a 26-year-old man recently paroled from a rape charge stemming from an attack on a woman in San Antonio, was arrested in the first weeks of March. Another woman, 28-year-old Betty Lee Jameson, was attacked on a crowded street on the evening of May 21st. Walking on Richard Avenue, a youngish man, likely about 25 to 30 with curly blonde hair, approached her and threw her onto the ground. She had just passed a car containing two police officers, M.E. Clark and J.H. Bell, who clearly saw the man approach her. She screamed, and before the policemen could respond, two men going into a bar gave chase to the man, who escaped. In a tragic turn of events, Betty Lee, a former model, shot herself at work only a month and a half later on, on July 3rd, and was found slumped over her desk. Just a week before the sighting of the Batman, on June 11th, an increasingly bold phantom attacked a woman named Evelyn Sheldon, who was driving to her husband's workplace. As her car sat at the intersection of West Alabama and Mount Vernon streets, she said, The door beside me jerked open, and a man grabbed me about the waist. In the familiar pattern, the man grabbed Shelton and threw her to the street. The two struggled, but eventually she managed to send her attacker running. She got back in her car and continued to the office, where she phoned police. Whoever he was, he continued his activities after the Batman sighting as well. On September 28th, another woman named Virginia Crosnell was also grabbed and tossed onto a lawn, onto a lawn three blocks away from her home. Another man was arrested in October. That man was arrested after he pulled up in a car next to 24-year-old Joyce Britton and asked her to get in the car. When she didn't comply, he charged out and threw Britton to the ground. She called the police, and the 40-year-old man was soon arrested. Captain Frank Murray said that the man was a logical suspect and that his general description and method of operation fit. As an addendum to the actions of the Bel Air Phantom, a woman named Betty Woods had her purse snatched on October 22nd. The attacker made off with $30. Robbery would seem to indicate a different offender, but Mrs. Woods said the, the mugger was husky and blonde and had grabbed her around the waist before punching her. The appearance and manner he went about his attack seemed consistent with the Phantom, though. My theory, then, is that the so-called Batman may have, actually, been nothing more than a very human sort of figure. It's possible that an actual attacker may have been staking out the property looking to attack one of the women. That's kind of a long shot, I'll admit, 
since the descriptions of the Batman seem definitively non-human. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram in Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there if you'd rather do that. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com for dark, and the first, epi- the first Patreon mini-episode, which is on William Beadle, the first, as far as I know, family annihilator in American history is up there now. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.